continuing our summer series looking at the expansion of Christianity in the, in the first century. And this morning we're going to be looking specifically at Acts chapter 10, uh, starting with the second half of verse 23 and then all the way through the end of uh, verse 48. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, I'd invite you to do that now, Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you want to use one of the ones uh, that are in the chair racks. There are blue Bibles there. Acts 10, uh, 23 is on page 1160. Nine. Now, last week we looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, um, and just as a quick catch-up, what you had is uh, the Jewish Christian apostle Peter is told by a messenger of God, an angel, that he is to go to a Gentile, an Italian, uh, named Cornelius. And Cornelius, for his part, is also told by a messenger of God uh, that he is to invite Peter to him because Peter has a specific message to share with him. That was last week. We learned about the backstory. Now, this week, we're actually going to hear what happens when Peter goes to visit Cornelius and the message that he shares. So, it's a bit of an extended passage, but if you're able, let me invite you to to stand as I read it, and then when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 10, starting the second half of verse 23. The next day, Peter rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, About this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth. And said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, about 800 years before Peter and what we just read, there was a guy who was given a command by God to take the good news of God to a people who didn't know God, to take good news to Gentiles. And these Gentiles that this man 800 years before Peter was commanded to take this message to were a powerful military force. They were known for oppressing the Jewish people. And God said to this guy, I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them about me. I want you to preach to them in my name about the forgiveness that comes. And this guy had a choice to make. Would he go? Would he take this good news to someone, to people, who he likely knew considered him to be an enemy? Now, ironically, or perhaps intentionally, this guy, whose name was Jonah, if you might remember, this guy Jonah made his decision about whether to go or not in the city of Joppa. And Jonah's decision in the city of Joppa was to run away. And God had to do a whole lot of pretty dramatic work in Jonah's life to get him going in the right direction and to get his attention. But that's what Jonah did when he was in Joppa. God told him to go and take the message of forgiveness to a people whom he considered to be enemies, and Jonah ran the other way. He found a ship in the opposite direction. Now back in Acts chapter 10, where's Peter? He's in Joppa, same city, about 800 years later. He's facing a similar decision, his own Joppa moment. Obey God and take the message of the forgiveness of God to the Gentiles or run. And Peter goes. He takes the gospel to the Roman Gentiles. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference at this moment between Peter and And Jonah, we need to know, we need to understand because we desperately need people like Peter in the world today. People who are willing to take the good news about Jesus and tell it to people who might be different, even when they might be hostile, even when we have friends who tell us we shouldn't go. What's the difference? What's the difference between Peter and Jonah at this moment? Well, I think the difference is that Peter is starting to get the gospel. More and more, it's penetrating into him, it's changing him, and Even as he's preaching it to others, he's getting a better understanding of what it means. Now, what it is about the gospel that's penetrating Peter so deeply is what we need to understand because that same thing is what connects with Cornelius when Peter shares it with him. And that's what I want to look at here. There's three main things. There's three main things that captivate Peter so much that he has to share this gospel. And there's three things that matter so much that intrigue Cornelius that he desires to hear it, and that he responds to it. There is the need for the gospel. There is the content of the gospel. And there is finally the change that comes from the gospel. Gospel need, gospel content, and gospel change. Let's look at each of them. First, gospel need. The heart of the text that we read admittedly centers around the content of the gospel. It centers around what Peter tells Cornelius, but we have to start with the need. We need to start with the need. Remind ourselves, who's this Cornelius guy again? Who is he? Well, we saw last week, early in chapter 10, that he was a Roman centurion, which means that he was in command of somewhere between 80 and 150 Roman legionnaires. Now, if that was the only fact you knew, then you might remember and you might kind of see a greater connection with Jonah and immediately kind of say, oh, Rome was a military enemy of the Jews and oppressing power. Maybe, like in Nineveh, this was a case of Peter being called to take the message of forgiveness to Cornelius 
because like the Ninevites, he needed to repent of all the evil things that he was doing, all the bad things that he was doing. That's actually not the primary case with Cornelius. Cornelius, in the grand scheme of things, and particularly for a non-Jewish person, for a Gentile in their eyes, he was actually a relatively good guy. And Peter sees this. Cornelius is a guy who had it all together, right? We just, well, we said that he had a well-respected job. A centurion was a well-respected position, right? particularly within the Roman kind of setting, of course. Centurions were typically men who had worked their way to their position from the rank and file, unlike some of the highest-ranking officers who sometimes got their position more by political appointment than by skill and hard work. A centurion was different. They had earned where they were, so he had been successful in his career. We also see that this is a guy who gave to charity. Look at verse 31. He gave gifts to the poor. It also appears that he had a pretty close family and network of friends. When he heard that Peter was coming, he gathered all of them together. And perhaps, most interestingly, he was also apparently a very spiritual man. Tells Peter how he had been, how he had been praying. So on every level, if you actually think about it this way, Cornelius seems like he's got life pretty much together professional life personal life spiritual life he's pretty good he's a pretty good guy now where i think this gets pretty interesting is this is not your typical sort of uh, your typical assumption of the kind of person who needs christianity right ask most people ask even most christians according to the research that i've seen even ask most christians what it means to be a christian and unless that person is openly hostile to christianity then what they probably have in their head is, is something like this. They'd say, oh, what's it mean to be a Christian? Well, I guess uh, yeah, being a Christian means you're a good person. It means you have your life together. It means you find you know, fulfillment in your, in your work. You love your family better. You, you get in touch with your spiritual side. That's what, a, that's what a Christian is. Now, what's the problem with that? Cornelius had all those things. Every single one of them, he had them. He's doing all these things, and yet God tells Peter to go tell Cornelius about Jesus, which means that there is something very different in the gospel than just doing all the good things and having all the outward lists, outward togetherness that we might want. You see, if you, if you come here frequently, you know very clearly, and we say it regularly, that the good news about Jesus speaks very directly to those who are deeply hurting to those who feel as if their lives are an absolute mess, to those who don't have the, the career and the, and the family and the spiritual life of Cornelius, right? Let me be very clear. If that's how you feel, the gospel speaks directly to that. And it gives you hope that in the midst of a life that is seemingly messed up, that life can be redeemed. But what is just as important for you to hear is that the gospel is equally needed by the Corneliuses too the together people who don't really understand the gospel are missing the most important thing. They're in desperate need. That's because the gospel is not primarily a need to be moral and cleaned up so that we can be useful to society and less destructive. No, the need for the gospel is a need, as Peter says in verse 36, is a need to have peace with God because it's implied before we believe the gospel It's implied that we're enemies of God. And he says in verse 43, the only way to have peace with God is for your sins, your rebellion against God to be forgiven. And the only way for that to happen, he says in verse 43, is to believe in Jesus. So you see, it's very interesting that you have this moral, upright, well-respected, highly successful man 
who is in just the same desperate need as the, of the gospel as the poorest, most messed up person in society. And so he says to Peter in verse 33, Now therefore, here we are in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's quite a statement. If you're certain about Christianity, if you're uncertain about Christianity, one way or the other, you have to be able to reach the point where you say, okay, my assumptions about Christianity may have been all wrong. That's what Cornelius was saying. I thought I knew God, thought I kind of understood it. Tell me the gospel. That's what Peter does. Point number two, gospel content. Now we have verse 34, 42, classic example of Peter's preaching. Clear, complete, historically rooted summary of the good news about Jesus. The, the theologians, the scholars, they call it the kerygma. It's a Greek word for preaching. It is essentially the core message of why Jesus is good news, the essential teaching of Christianity. Let's break it down quickly. This is what Peter does. What he calls in verse 36, the good news, that is the gospel, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. What are the essential elements that you need to know about? Well, first, you need to know about the life and the ministry of Jesus. That's where Peter starts in verse 37, all the way to the first part of 39, right? The, the life and the ministry of Jesus. He was a man who came from Nazareth. He started his ministry in the region of Galilee after he had been baptized by John. He went around in the power of God, doing good things and healing people. So you need to know that. Now, you also need to know that Jesus was, was killed and that he rose again from the dead. That's what he says in the second half of 39 through verse 41. And Peter lingers for a minute on the resurrection, emphasizing that this isn't just a theory. This actually really happened. People saw Jesus. Jesus had a, had a real physical body because he ate and drank with them. So you need to know that too. Now finally, you also need to know that there is a response that's required. When you learn about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's a response that's, that's needed. And that, and that is that's belief. Who do you believe in? Verse 43. You believe in him, in, in Jesus. Now, in each of these things Peter talks about, there's a reminder that Christianity is primarily not a life philosophy. It is primarily a person. It is primarily about Jesus, an historical person who lived at a particular time, died a physical death, and who came back to life in a verifiable way, and who will call people to account as a judge. That's the content of the gospel. That's the content that meets the need of Cornelius. Cornelius needed to meet this Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that believing in Jesus, meeting Jesus, is where it stops because you need to respond to this. There needs to be some sort of, a, 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 of an evidence that the need and the, and the content come together for us to know that the gospel has penetrated, and that's what we see in point number three, the gospel result. Look at verses 44 to 47. While Peter was still saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter wasn't even done talking. And the Holy Spirit comes upon everyone who's there. And they're converted. They're changed. They had been good, moral, successful, God-fearing people. But now, 
Now they're Christians. They've met Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They're ready to be baptized and join the church. How does Peter know that? How does he know that? Well, because he saw the evidence of the Holy Spirit, which was, specifically it says in verse 46, the fact that they were speaking in tongues and praising God. You have two things, speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, what does that mean? Let's start with the simpler one. At least it seems like it's the simpler one, praising God, right? An evidence that they were truly converted. When someone is converted, they begin to praise God. They worship. Now, when we talk about worship in the Bible, we're not just talking about, you know, mouthing the words to a song on Sunday morning. We're talking about taking something and ascribing to it ultimate value, putting it at the center of our lives. We bow down before it, and we say to that thing, you are my God. Now, some people choose socially destructive things to bow down to, and other people choose things that are more socially constructive, like happy families and successful careers, to bow down to. But everyone bows down before something, something that they say, this is the center, this is my reason for living, this is my reason for existing, this is what I will serve. That's why the need of good Cornelius for Jesus is just as much desperate as the need for prostitutes and tax collectors that Jesus regularly seeks out in his ministry because Cornelius is just as guilty of worshiping a false god as they were. But when you begin praising God like it says they started doing, it means that you see those things, whether they're destructive things or constructive things from a societal standpoint, you see those things for what they really are. They're false gods. They're things to which you have been giving your worship inappropriately. And you begin to see how your praise for them is really misplaced. How ultimately those things, good or bad, can never do for you what Jesus can do for you because those things will always have the potential to fail you. And they do. That potential will always be there. Your family can fail you. Your career can fail you. (laughs) Even try relying on your morality. That doesn't work too well. Your morality will fail you. All of those things will ultimately fail you. The one thing, the only thing to center your life around that will never fail you is God. That is what you bow down to. That is what is at the center. That is what it means to praise God. And that's what they were doing. And that's the evidence of having been converted. Now, what's the deal with speaking in tongues? I have to address it. I don't want to get too distracted by it. We could spend... We could spend weeks probably talking about it and debating it, but we have to address it. There's a lot of controversy about what it means to speak in tongues and a lot of controversy throughout the history of the church. Now, a tongue is just another word for a language. And some people maintain that the that tongues, specifically spoken of in this context here, are a special, special kind of language, an unknown heavenly prayer language that most people can't understand. Now, I think it more likely, especially based on what you see in the book of Acts, is that these are known languages that non-speakers are miraculously able to hear and understand. Still a miracle that's going on here, but they're known languages that they wouldn't normally be able to understand, that they are now are able to understand. That's certainly what it seems to suggest at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But whatever it means for you or for me or for the church down the street, the one thing that we can conclude The one thing that we most definitely cannot conclude is that whenever someone is converted, they must speak in tongues in order to demonstrate that conversion. You don't don't see that anywhere here in the book of Acts. There's lots of people who are converted in the book of Acts, and there's no mention of speaking in tongues at all. 
even when they're converted in really dramatic ways, like with the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, or with Saul in in Acts chapter 9, or even in other instances where it clearly talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit to people when they're converted, like it does with Philip when Philip goes to, to Samaria, right? Same thing there. The Holy Spirit clearly says, coming down upon the people, it was evident of that, but there's no mention of speaking in tongues there. So it isn't something... It isn't something, unlike many of the other things that we see in this account about Cornelius, it isn't something, speaking in tongues is not something that we can identify as a normative experience because it hardly ever happens. So you're left then with either two choices. Either the fact that Peter and the others witnessed this is no big deal. It's just a casual observation. They just kind of, you know, it's just kind of thrown in here. No big deal. And they were speaking in tongues. Or, number two, it's such a big deal this, this, this speaking and hearing in, in other languages is such a big deal that it only happens a very limited number of times in order to make a very specific point, and those very limited number of times to make a very specific point are what's recorded for us here in the book of Acts. And I think that the answer is probably number two. What's happening here, here, that's what's needed here. We'll look next week in chapter 11 about how Peter's going to go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to need to explain to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, why he's baptizing Gentiles into the same church. He's going to have to have to go back to Jerusalem and explain to the apostles why he's doing what he's doing. And Peter's going to tell all the church leaders about what he saw, and he's going to tell them about how the Holy Spirit came on these Gentiles. And Peter is going to take them back to Pentecost, and he's going to remind them how the same thing happened in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came to establish the church, how at the same time back then people were speaking in tongues. And he's going to make the link between the two. How this event with Cornelius links into God's larger story, his historical plan to expand and grow the church. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more next week, but for now it's important to note once again how the gospel equalizes and levels the ground for people who are different. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad, whether you're together or whether you're a mess, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Italian, whether you speak Hebrew, Latin, or Greek. It's about whether you've been transformed by the gospel from the inside out, about whether your sins have been forgiven by Jesus and you've submitted submitted yourself to his rule over your life. The coming of the Holy Spirit in a dramatic way linked to the, the, the episode at Pentecost is the evidence that a sea change is happening in the life of the church here. The gospel is being opened up to the Gentiles in a dramatic way. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 10. Now, those are the three main points. Gospel need that makes us receptive to gospel content, which then produces a gospel result. Now, before we finish, I want to make sure we don't miss something that's incredibly important. Because I think we have to ask, what is it about this gospel that actually makes it so transformative. In other words, if we aren't careful, we can miss something because because we've reviewed the content of Peter's message, but what we have to see is how what Jesus did and what Peter explains, how it becomes so transformative for me and you, particularly before we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. We have to understand this. Did you see that phrase again in verse 39 about how Jesus died? He says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, Peter's obviously referring to the cross on which Jesus was was executed, you know, sort of a wooden tree of 
of sorts. But G- Peter's using this language. He's using the image of a tree to say something else, to say something very specific. He could have said a cross. But he used this language because when someone died on a tree, it was a sign of shame and rejection to the Jewish people. According to the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy, anyone who hung, was hung on a tree was cursed by God. I know Cornelius and his friends and his family, they were Gentiles, but they were familiar enough with the Jewish custom that they would have understood what was being communicated here. And Peter is once again breaking down barriers again because he's speaking to Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And as a Roman centurion, he would have had a whole other perspective on why death upon a cross would have been a cursed thing, right? Who was it that executed Jesus? Who carried it out? It's the Romans, right? Right? These, this was, there, there was a Roman centurion on duty when Jesus was crucified. And, the, and to the Romans, crucifixion was a cursed death too. Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was too terrible. It was only for those of a lesser breed, like slaves or like Jews. So you see what Peter's saying. The death of Jesus not only occurred, the death of Jesus was a curse. It was a curse to the Jews. It was a curse to the Gentiles. That's how it would have been understood universally. This is not just an ordinary death. It's not just another execution. It's a cursed death. And that cursed death is the good news because that's how the forgiveness of sins that Peter offers to Cornelius can be received by him and by us. It's how God redeems us from the debt that we owe to him. Paul says in Galatians 3.13, he makes the link for us. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and then he goes back to Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Did you see what he says? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's how it happens. Jesus accepts the curse we deserve and he does it willingly. No one does it to him. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And when that truth penetrates you, when you realize that this is not something that you are owed, this forgiveness of sins, that it is something that it is given and it is given at great cost, that the curse that you deserve has been taken from someone else, by, taken by someone else, taken by this Jesus that Peter proclaims. When you realize that, that's what transforms you. Chris Plankenpaul was a captain in the U.S. Army, commanding a cavalry unit, not cavalry, cavalry unit in the Army, in the Iraq War, which is tanks. They don't use horses anymore, which means he was a tank commander. And he tells at the time they were out on patrol in their assigned sector when a terrorist drove a car bomb into the side of one of, his men's, one of his men's tanks. But the bomb didn't explode. Something was wrong. It was miscalibrated or something like that. But what happens when you ram a two-and-a-half-ton car into a 72-ton tank is not good for the car. And so the terrorist, is, he's, he's knocked out, he's unconscious, and the gas tank catches fire in the car. And there's this massive inferno moving from the back of the car to the front of the car where the bombs are. And the terrorist wakes up, and he's able to roll out of the car, and he's trying to roll away from the car before it explodes. The tank is able to just keep moving. The tank is fine. You've just got this car sitting there. And this man, who has rolled out of the car, but is still only semi-conscious, and he's lying there, 
feeling somehow that he's got to get away, but completely unable to be able to do it. And Chris Plankenpaul says that he's, he's watching from a safe distance, but he's watching. He's standing there, safe distance, but close enough to be able to save the man's life. It's a Joppa moment. Remember the Joppa moment? It's like Jonah and Joppa deciding whether to get on a ship to preach the forgiveness to the, the hated Ninevites. It's like Peter in Joppa deciding whether he's going to take the message of salvation to the, to the unclean Gentiles. It's that moment when you, when you decide whether you're going to act on what you know to bring about the rescue of someone else who is in danger, even if that person is your enemy. But Chris Plank and Paul didn't do it. He just watched. Watched as the car burned and then exploded and then killed the man. Captain Plank and Paul is now a pastor of a church in Austin, Texas. He was a Christian at the time when he was in the army, and he says that moment still haunts them. He realizes, he understands his role as a military commander. He understood that his role may not have been properly and militarily speaking at that moment to subject himself, an officer, to the danger that would have been required. He understands the military protocol and that from a military standpoint, he did not do anything wrong. But he says, as I understand the gospel and as it penetrates me more and more, I understand that, that speaking with my relationship to God, I'm like that terrorist. When it comes to how I've lived my life toward God, I've been an enemy to him. And yet he didn't sit back in his tank and let me die. That's what Plank and Paul says. He decided to come from heaven to earth to take that blast for me. You see, when you understand that, that the king of heaven and earth put himself in danger shielded you, rescued you from the explosion that you deserved, quite frankly, and took the blast on your behalf, that's what transforms you. That's what transformed Cornelius. That's what compels Peter. And every one of us is in one of those two categories. We are either in need of transformation by that gospel or we are in need of, of being compelled by that gospel to take it to someone else. Either you need to be transformed or you need to be transformed. You either need to be transformed to believe it or transformed so that you are compelled to share it. You're either Peter or Cornelius. But in both cases, your Joppa moment, your moment of decision is only possible because of Jesus. Because when he faced his Joppa moment, his moment of decision before the world began, he decided that he would intervene. We were his enemies. He could have completely and justly decided to stay right where he was. But he had the means to save us and he didn't just sit back and watch. He made a conscious decision not just to sit comfortably in his tank. He took the blast. He took the curse. He took it for you. He took it for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ. For the sacrifice that he displayed on our behalf so that we might be able to come to this table here this morning. That we are able to celebrate the forgiveness of sins, not as an abstract concept, but as something that is real for us because of what you have done. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. When he sat with his disciples and ate a meal. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 explains what happened. Paul writes that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this.